0: This is Doing Translational Research, a podcast from the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research in the College of Human Ecology
1: at Cornell University. Hello and welcome. This is Doing Translational Research. I'm your host, Tony Burrow, director of the Bronfenbrenner Center for Translational Research. Today, I'm extremely grateful to be joined by my colleague here at Cornell, Dr. Laura Bellows. Hi, Laura. Hi. In just a minute, you'll get to hear directly from Dr. Bellows, but before we jump into things, a proper introduction is in order. Dr. Bellows is an associate professor in the Division of Nutritional Sciences. A fairly recent arrival to Cornell, she joined the faculty just this year after spending 20 years at Colorado State University. Dr. Bellows' research focuses on the development of eating habits and physical activity patterns in early childhood, interventions in the early care setting, and the influence of parental behaviors and the home environment on the development of these behaviors much of her work is focused on health disparate populations including those with limited resources those who are latino and those living in rural communities her work has received funding from usda nih and a host of community foundations her among her awards in 2011 dr bellows was awarded the presidential early career award for scientists and engineers by President Barack Obama. She serves as an associate editor for the International Journal of Behavioral Nutrition and Physical Activity and co-chairs of the research division for the Society of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior. So without further ado, welcome to you, Dr. Bellows. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Before we jump into the broader story here, could you please just indulge me for one minute and tell me, did you get to meet President Barack Obama?
0: I did. So there were about 90 of us through all um, national agencies that got this award. But we were warned that we would be there for a photo op and not to expect much. Um, But we did have the opportunity to shake his hand and hang out in the White House for a bit. And it was a lot of kids that were like being in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, (laughs) It was... Pretty fun and pretty cool.
1: How fun and cool can that be that one of our guests met President Barack Obama while receiving an award herself might be the coolest thing to ever be discussed on this podcast. So <laughs> that's really, really neat. So, so it might be helpful uh, if you'd give us a summary of your research interests. And the way we'd like to get into this is perhaps you could point us to what is the big question or questions that your work is trying to answer?
0: Yeah, so I think from a a big perspective, it's looking at obesity prevention, particularly focused on audiences that are most vulnerable, so those who um, are at risk based on um, ethnicity, environmental factors, including living in rural communities, and certainly uh, those with limited resources or who are low income. And with that, we feel strongly, I say we as my team, um, about intervening in early childhood or even as young as we can in the development of healthy eating behaviors as well as physical activity so that we can build foundational behaviors that will carry on through later childhood and into adulthood.
1: Can I ask where did that interest come from? Something you've always been interested in or does something push you in that direction at some point?
0: Yeah, I actually was more interested on the other spectrum of uh, the lifespan and did a lot of my uh, work in my master's with aging Mm -hmm. populations, Mm -hmm. Um, but there was an opportunity, you know, for me in my first introduction to research, I was on a a study that focused on preschool-aged children, Um, and I think that just kind of um, brought me in. I was more interested in the intervention kind of components and working in communities, Um, and then I just fell in love with the age. I think they're just curious and they're, they're, they're malleable and they have such potential and you can also give them back at the end of the day.
1: (laughs) That sounds good. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so you just mentioned as much, you alluded to the fact that you work with communities. Could you talk a little bit about what that experience has been like for you working alongside or partnering with communities?
0: So by far, it's the favorite part of the job. Um, So I consider, you know, the state or the communities as my laboratory. And what's um, fun for me is seeing the real world and getting to know people, engaging with and building relationships, but trying to solve real world problems um, and seeing it from the lens in the community, not from the researcher from the ivory tower. And so I have always prided myself and my work on being out there in the community, not just trying to conduct the research from campus, but having conversations and going to the preschools, you know, not just Mm -hmm. to show up when the research needs to get done, but showing up when they're having parent nights or Mm -hmm. they're having conversations or just to sit and eat with the kids to try to understand the context of what we're trying to change. Um, But also, you know, sometimes when you work with community agencies, there's a point person, and that's usually someone at an administrative level. And so I've also really enjoyed getting to know the teachers in the classroom because ultimately they're the gatekeepers to what we're trying to do Mm -hmm. and understanding it from their perspective, what would make their job easier, what would be most helpful to them um, for the type of work we do, what are they struggling with, how can we, you know, not just improve the outcomes with the children, but making it something that is not just easy for them to do, but is going to be sustainable Mm -hmm. over time.
1: So I hear mention of finding point people and spending time in community spaces when it may not just be directly about the research, but about building rapport, building Mm -hmm. relationships. Can you talk about any challenges that come along with doing community research or working with community partners?
0: I would say the top thing is just differences in priorities, right? Mm -hmm. So our priority, you know, we're passionate about the type of work we do as researchers. Um, And I think the communities value what we do. You know, Mm -hmm. certainly in my area, I haven't met a teacher who doesn't want to help kids eat better or be more active. Mm -hmm. But they're also... Their backs sometimes can be against the wall as far as they've got this new reading program or they've got a social and emotional program they need to do. So, where in the day are they going to fit this? Is this become one more thing that they need to try to fit in? Mm. And that's usually the bigger concern. So, you know, when we are out there visiting, we're looking for opportunities to see where does this fit? How could it marry or amplify what you're already doing? So, you know, for example, we've put a lot of storybooks into our nutrition intervention because literacy was a really big piece Mm. at the time. And so how do we have you switch out the type of books you're reading um, that have a nutrition theme? So it doesn't become that one more thing. We Mm. also heard um, when we were developing our physical activity program about character building was something that was really important to the teachers at the time. And we had developed these cartoon characters who had personalities and they had superpowers. And where the teachers wanted us to go is, well, okay, if they have superpowers, can they be more than just physical superpowers? Can Mm. they be uh, really good community citizens? And can we build in character building? And so can these characters help kids and help the community learn about being kind and helping your neighbor? And so that was one way that we could shift our story a little bit and engage the children but amplify what was important to the teachers. Hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that doesn't come from the formal research. That mm-hmm. comes from just sitting down and talking with them and going, okay, I'm hearing what you're doing and what your priorities are, so let me take a step back and think how I can fit in what I'd like you to do in your bigger agenda.
1: Mm-hmm. So if I'm following, it sounds like there can be challenges, but they can also be opportunities to learn about what's important to community partners and uh, how, to, how to work alongside uh, what folks are already doing. I'd like to see some of the comic characters that were created, too, uh, <laughs> the, along the way. Thinking about your work broadly, what are a couple of things that you'd really like the public to know, some big takeaways from your work?
0: So I would say the one area that I get the most interest and in. it came out in the the webinars about picky eating uh, okay. I think most parents can relate to this especially a parent of a two to five year old because it's something they struggle with day in and day out mm-hmm. and so what I would say to parents is that picky eating is a normal developmental phase that the majority of kids go through hmm. it takes eight to 12 exposures to a new food before they're comfortable and willing to potentially put it in their mouth and swallow it. Hmm. And what I would tell parents is to take that step back, because there's a lot of frustration with kids not eating Hmm. the foods that are served, and take that step back and recognize what you're asking a three-year-old or four-year-old to do, which is put something in their mouth they might not be familiar with. And we as adults are used to just trying new foods because we've built up a repertoire of experiences. And young kids are blank slates and don't have those experiences. So, mm-hmm. how can you build that familiarity through talking about the food's colors, textures, you know, how does it taste um, in a non judgmental way mm-hmm. of you should do this or mm-hmm. try to take two bites, but rather kind of build their curiosity because mm-hmm. they're really curious at this age? So, that would be one thing. The other would be on the physical activity side. So while parents are really eager and engaged in the picky eating or trying to influence how their child eats, there's not as much awareness that motor skills are something that need to be developed, and they are the building blocks to physical activity. Just like the ABCs are the building blocks to reading and one 2 threes are the building blocks to math, skipping, jumping, hopping, and balancing are the building blocks of physical activity. And so as kids develop those skills, they become more competent in their movement, and um, which leads to lifelong physical activity, but also socially. They're the kids who are participating on the playground. They're not necessarily picked last for a game of kickball. And so there's value in developing these skills, and they don't develop naturally. So it does take Practice and encouragement uh, from parents to engage with their kids in motor development.
1: You know, thinking about those insights, um, it sort of dawns on me that on one hand, when we're talking about nutrition and diets, we're talking about food, which is enjoyable to some of us uh, present Mm -hmm. companies. It's an enjoyable experience to to eat, to consume food. But I, I kind of get a sense that some of your work sort of delves into that experience at moments of frustration, mm-hmm. recognizing that it's um, kids are being picky in what they're eating or parents really want their kid to eat something at dinner or whatever it might be. And so um, do you sense that in your work that in some ways you're trying to first um, help people be less frustrated uh, with what's happening, and then start to suggest through either the, the research you do or the intervention work you do, suggest healthier, more positive ways of going about it. Is there is do you contend with the frustration part of this at all?
0: We do, and I think it's because that's what's front and center when it okay. when you talk about eating, and particularly around mealtime mm-hmm. at the in the evenings at dinner time, and there's the ideal that's been set which is that it's the Leave it to Beaver, Norman Rockwell, that everyone mm-hmm. comes to the table at 6 p.m. Mm-hmm. and everyone's going to have an enjoyable conversation and have this beautiful meal and we're all going to get along and probably sing kumbaya. <laughs> and <laughs> and that's not the reality in today's world, right? On a mm-hmm. Tuesday afternoon when you've got an older kid who's got soccer practice, mm-hmm. some of our families are doing shift work and dad doesn't get home till 8 o'clock, In our low-income families, they might not have a structure to Mm -hmm. sit at to Mm -hmm. come together, even though that's – what's really important to families is eating the same food at the same time Mm -hmm. and being together. Mm -hmm. But circumstances in conventional life don't always allow that. And then you add on top of it this developmental phase of pickiness Mm -hmm. and fear of Mm – food neophobia or fear of new things, which is just that developmental stage. Mm. And so parents feel this pressure to put out this, you know, nice meal, balanced meal. And then your kids just kind of throw it to (laughs) the wind um, because they don't want to eat what you want. They might be tired. And so what we talk to our parents about is being present and you defining where good is good enough. And maybe the big family meals are on on a weekend day or once a week, or what what is it that your family can achieve? Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. there's a lot of guilt that comes with not serving mm-hmm. that ideal meal. We also talk to parents about being present with your child. And I think a lot of us do the whole, yeah, 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 as you're multitasking and trying to cook dinner, but you know, you got to load of laundry in, you're helping another child and the preschooler. One thing they learn pretty early on is as they're building towards independence is they can control very few things. And one thing they can control is food. And so they will use that to their advantage and Mm. parents will like it's almost a trap. And I think the more attention you give to a child who's refusing, Mm. it's it's they want something else. They want your attention. Hmm. And so if you can be present and give them attention unrelated to food, it can make the mealtime a little more relaxed and comfortable.
1: That's really interesting. And it's just a reminder of how contextually embedded eating is, and especially when you want children to eat and eat healthy. But it's it's not just a one-to-one want and outcome there's a whole context you, you, mm-hmm. the rest of your life is unfolding around that and the rest of the child's life is unfolding around that and so just a reminder of how complex the world can become mm-hmm. so in so many ways i think these insights you've already shared maybe illuminate a couple of pathways you might answer this question but sort of a, a final question i have is if there were one real world change that you could make based upon your work what would it be and and why
0: Well, I have two answers to that because the first, I don't think my research will address, but it's poverty. I think if we could solve poverty, I think we would solve a lot of problems related Mm -hmm. to, in this case, diet. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, we would have a more equitable food system. We would have nutrition security, not just food security, um, and I think you would see obesity and disease rates go down. So that's, to me, what we should all be striving for. Right. But I think what I'm most interested in in today's climate is, so I do a lot of my work in rural communities, and I, I think with the rural-urban divide right now and in our, our current kind of environment, Food brings people together and brings people to have conversations. And I lived in an urban area but did a lot of my work in Colorado and rural communities, and it was always so striking how much more we have in common. Hmm. And I do think that food can bring us together and have these conversations. And I think we need to really start looking for the similarities in how, for example, the food system is grown in our rural areas, but our urban centers are distributing it and, you know, they're driving some of the markets. And so how do we have these conversations where we're building off of the community assets hmm. and not focused on the differences or that it's us versus them and that our, our cultures and our lifestyles are really different? Mm-hmm. Um, I think related to, to my work, I believe that we can build stronger community relationships and engagement um, in the arena of food, diet, physical activity, and obesity.
1: That's really, really interesting. Um, Just a lot to reflect on there. And I find the idea brilliant and heartwarming that food can bring us together, um, especially through... The research lens of seeing spaces where it can make people feel quite distant, the struggle of getting kids to eat something, um, mm-hmm. but the fact that in that challenge is also insights that it could also bring us together in the ways that you've mentioned. Let me take a quick moment and ask, is there anything that you'd like to share or say that I didn't ask about? Or did I cover all the bases?
0: Yes, well, that's a good
1: question. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Okay, that's, you. that's great. We, we can roll with it. Well, this was a delightful conversation. Um, I'd like to once again thank you, Dr. Bellows, for taking the time to chat with us and share a little bit about your work. Um, and thank you all for listening to this episode of Doing Translational Research. For more information about translational research or the work of the Bronfman brenner Center, please visit bctr.cornell.edu or follow us on Twitter at CornellBCTR. Take care for now.